Okay, today we're going to be talking about the market uh, uh, in both the North uh, and the South, and we'll start with the North. Now, beginning in 1815, where we basically last left off chronologically, uh, the American North underwent a revolution which was every bit as profound and far-reaching as the American Revolution had been. Now, it wasn't a revolution involving guns or battles uh, uh, or you know, a military revolution, uh, so we don't always think of it as such. Uh, but if we define the word revolution as leading to basic elemental changes in American life, then the market revolution in the North certainly qualifies as a revolution. It changed the economy of the region uh, and the nation uh, in ways that continue to affect us today. Uh, uh, and certainly uh, our modern economy today, uh, such as it is, uh, uh, is really just an updated version of the market revolution that started in the United States in 1815. Of course, it's a larger economy in terms of scale, uh, but it's similar in philosophy. The market revolution in the North also changed class relations, changed race relations, changed the culture and the politics uh, during the first half of the 19th century. And eventually, the market revolution did in fact cause a military revolution because to a large extent, it caused the Civil War between 1861 and 1865, which, as we shall see, many historians consider the second American Revolution. So calling this the market revolution is not an overstatement. So what was the market revolution and why did it occur? Well, you'll remember that in 1815, America had just fought a war, the War of 1812, largely because it remained in the same kind of colonial economic relationship with Great Britain that it had been in prior to the American Revolution, shipping raw materials to Great Britain uh, for Great Britain's finished or manufactured goods. American leaders in the wake of the War of 1812 understood that this had to change, that America needed to develop a domestic manufacturing industry, in other words, its own manufacturing industry, to sell to domestic markets, to sell to its own markets. And over the next 25 years, this is exactly what happened, at least in the North and in the West, what we now call the Midwest. Northern cities and rural areas in the North and West developed the kind of symbiotic relationship, complementary relationship, that had previously characterized America and Great Britain. Northern cities, taking the place of Great Britain, provided manufactured goods and finance, meaning money, capital, for the North uh, uh, and the Western rural areas. And in turn, the western areas, the rural areas in both the uh, north and the, mid and, and the west, but increasingly in the west, the rural areas served as markets for the manufactured goods uh, 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 that were being uh, manufactured, being put together uh, in the northern cities. And the rural areas shipped food to the cities, uh, which served as their markets starting with regional markets where, for example, uh, uh, to take uh, a specific example, the developing upstate New York City of Rochester uh, traded with farms in the surrounding upstate New York uh, countryside. 
Uh, uh, this is an example of that. It's actually a famous example because it's the subject of a book by Paul Johnson, who is the historian who has written uh, this section of your textbook. Uh, it's called The Shopkeeper's Millennium, and it's a fa famous book about uh, the rise of the market in upstate New York. Uh, by the latter part of the 19th century, uh, uh, this regional system had multiplied into a vast, massive national market linked by railroads a self-sufficient system that was the envy of the world and the most productive in the world. Now, the post-1815 market in the North really started uh, 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 in 1790 uh, when an Englishman named Samuel Slater, S-L-A-T-E-R, decided to reproduce or to attempt to reproduce the British factory system, <clears throat> which was already developing there in America. Now, to do so, he had to carry the specifications for building such a factory out of Great Britain in his head. Because Great Britain, in an attempt to protect its technological lead, had prohibited those plans from leaving the country. Samuel Slater used his photographic memory to construct a water-powered British-style factory in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, uh, the first one of its kind, which mass-produced cotton and woolen textiles. By the early 1820s, another entrepreneur from New England, uh, Francis Cabot Lowell, uh, who was a Boston blue blood. You know, there's a saying in Boston that the Cabots speak only to the Lowells, and the Lowells speak only to God. Uh, well, this guy was a Cabot and a Lowell, Francis Cabot Lowell. Uh, uh, he improved on Slater's fa factory system by making the factory so mechanized uh, uh, that they could be operated almost entirely by unskilled labor, the beginning of the end for the Republican independence of the skilled artisan. Lowell even began hiring single young women from the surrounding New England countryside to work in his Waltham, Massachusetts, and his Lowell, Massachusetts mills, uh, Lowell, Massachusetts, named after Francis Cabot Lowell. Later, another New England entrepreneur uh, made a huge amount of money on his textile mills and decided to use some of it to start a college in Wisconsin. His name was Amos Lawrence. Now, by the 1820s and 1830s, a number of factors had come together uh, to produce the market revolution in America, uh, of which Lowell's factories and Lawrence's factories were an integral part. Now, first, America was undergoing a transportation revolution, which was essential for the market revolution. Uh, uh, it, of course, helped goods uh, move more cheaply and more rapidly uh, uh, across uh, the country. The transportation revolution included the development of paved roads, something that we uh, uh, take for granted today, uh, which made land transportation more, more efficient. There was the development of the steamboat by uh, Robert Fulton in 1807, uh, which uh, permitted not only faster water transportation, uh, but allowed boats to go upstream as well as downstream on rivers. Canals especially the famous Erie Canal of New York, which was finished in 1825, also sped uh, water transport and linked rural farm areas uh, to eastern urban markets. The Erie Canal really opened up uh, the Midwest. And, of course, the railroad. 
The railroad revolutionized the process of getting goods to market. Uh, the first railroad uh, uh, was the B&O, Baltimore and Ohio, in uh, 1828. And by the 1840s and 1850s, uh, railroads had basically replaced canals. Now, this transportation revolution meant that there was eight times more produce shipped from the west to eastern cities in the United States in 1840, as there had been in 1810, and by 1860, 30 times more. So between 1850 and, 1860, and 18, 1815 and 1860, the cost of transporting goods dropped almost by half. Now, in addition to improved transportation, the market revolution was getting substantial help uh, from the government itself, the federal government, uh, uh, and also state governments after 1815. Congress chartered a national bank, for example, in 1816, and gave it strong powers over the economy, which it used to encourage business and commerce. The national bank held all federal money. The national bank started the move towards a national currency system. Uh, this actually didn't come to pass fully till later in the 19th century, but this was something that the National Bank of the United States started. The National Bank started the move towards national control of credit and interest rates, which in the 20th century became the Federal Reserve System. The National Bank was able to regulate currency by demanding that state banknotes, and there were still notes being given, uh, being issued uh, uh, by the states, state banks, that state banknotes uh, 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 used in transactions with the federal government be backed by gold. In other words, sound money, hard money, no inflation. Now, the Bank of the United States was very friendly to entrepreneurs uh, and businessmen, uh, encouraging uh, market growth. Congress also passed uh, uh, the nation's first tariff in, uh, in 1816. Does everybody know what a tariff is? What's a tariff? Yeah, it's a tax on imports and an attempt to protect domestic or local uh, uh, industries. Uh, 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 and it, it, uh, uh, it discourages a tariff reliance on foreign imports. And Congress at least attempted to aid the construction of uh, roads and canals and railroads, what we, uh, what we call internal improvements, uh, uh, as a, to use that phrase, uh, in the 19th century. But hamstrung by constitutional objectives, uh, objections in the early part of the 19th century, the question of could the federal government uh, finance projects that were wholly within a state in other words, the Interstate Commerce Clause of the, uh, of the Constitution allows Congress to, to control commerce between the states. But what if this is a project wholly uh, within a state? Uh, early on, because of this constitutional objection, much of the financing for roads and canals and railroads uh, came uh, actually uh, from the states themselves. And the Erie Canal is a good example. So that was, that was financed not by the federal government, but by the state governments. States would give out direct subsidies, uh, tax breaks, uh, favorable corporate charters, uh, bond issues. And as the century proceeded, as we go past 1815, uh, the Supreme Court 
under, remember that old Federalist, John Marshall, and uh, Ted is going to be telling us uh, more about John Marshall after I'm through. Uh, uh, the Supreme Court itself adopted a strong uh, pro-business, pro-market stance uh, during this time as well. Chief Justice Marshall's attitude was that if a man wanted to use his land or his property for a legitimate business purpose, he could do so, even if that use impacted negatively on his neighbor. For Marshall, the public benefit inherent in uh, business or market development uh, uh, outweighed the damage done to one or two or three individual property holders. For example, the Dartmouth College case in 1819. In this case, the Supreme Court, led by Marshall, upheld the original state charter to Dartmouth College, which is in uh, New Hampshire, and prevented it from being taken over by the state of New Hampshire and made into a state university. That would be like uh, uh, the state of Wisconsin trying to take over Lawrence uh, and make it part of the UW system. Now, the Dartmouth College case in which the original charter of the college was upheld uh, had the effect of upholding all state charters to private corporations, not just to colleges, but to any private corporation, including corporations that built canals and roads and railroads, giving them a special privilege. This ruling angered many, including Andrew Jackson and the Democratic Party, as we shall see. Another case, Gibbons versus Ogden. The Marshall Court in this case prohibited states from interfering with interstate commerce, commerce between the uh, several states, ensuring that private businesses could grow freely across state lines and could not be regulated by individual states. Now, by the 1830s, this combination of private initiative, of government aid, of natural resources, had produced an economic system that was well on its way to internal self-sufficiency. Uh, imports from other countries, for example, were about 15% of Americans, America's GNP in, uh, in 1815, but had dropped by almost half in 1830 and dropped even more after that. America, compared to 1815, was almost a new country by the 1830s. It was crisscrossed by canals and roads and increasingly railroads. Factories were springing up in eastern cities, producing consumer goods that Americans in 1815 could only have dreamed of. Farmers, eager for such uh, mass-produced goods, were abandoning subsistence farming and producing crops and livestock for the market because you needed money to buy these things sometimes trading their surplus crops and sometimes uh, even their entire crop for cash, leading to the anomalous situation sometimes of some farmers being unable to feed themselves and being forced to buy food from outside merchants. Now, as you might imagine, there were consequences for America as a result of all of this. Political, economic, cultural social consequences, and some of them were deeply troubling, presaging real trouble in the future. First, American culture as a whole was changing, and for many observers, not for the better. America was becoming a society in which one thing and one thing only seemed to matter. Money, the getting of it and the spending of it. 
Alexis de Tocqueville, who we read a bit of for today, that most perceptive observer of American culture in the 1830s, uh, described the average American uh, uh, as someone who, quote, clutches everything, holds nothing fast, but soon loosens his grip to pursue fresh gratification. Sounds like us today as well. In a market society where only money and profit mattered, where the bottom line was paramount, the old glue that held society together began to loosen. The idea of civility and charity, of caring for the welfare of your neighbor. The idea of dignity, of judging someone on how he behaved, not how much money he made. How he carried himself, not how much he was worth. The idea of deference, which was such a big part of patriarchy that I talked about earlier, uh, flawed as that idea was, where those who were older commanded respect, even if they didn't have money. And it began to loosen even the idea of republicanism that I talked about before, uh, where individuals sacrificed themselves for the community as a whole. If only the individual individual needs, individual wants, individual incomes, individual bottom line, if only the individual mattered, American society was becoming harsher and less forgiving of the weak and of the poor, who were the inevitable losers in a market system. American culture was now an individualistic one. But who would help an individual who did not succeed in such a culture? By the 1830s, these questions were beginning to be asked, but there were ominously no answers. And the new market society had clear ec economic consequences as well, uh, uh, especially in the eastern cities. Here, sharp class demarcations were beginning to form between the elite or the upper class, uh, manufacturers, uh, businessmen, merchants, bankers, uh, 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 that class, and a middle class of middlemen and white-collar employees of these manufacturers and bankers and merchants uh, who identified with the upper class and looked down at the indolent poor. Finally, an increasingly frustrated urban working class composed of formerly independent artisans and craftsmen who had been put out of business by this mechanization of production. Uh, who had sunk to the level of a semi-skilled or an unskilled employee without a future or without an independent uh, future. And then, of course, there was just the urban poor, which by the 1840s would be composed of a large percentage of immigrants, sometimes unskilled laborers, sometimes jobless, who occupied the lowest rungs on the class ladder. The market revolution had apparently created a permanent urban working class, impoverished and dependent, with seemingly no way out of its condition, a mockery of the American premise of upward mobility. Here, too, ominously, there seemed no answer to this phenomenon of class stratification and class anger, more potential trouble for the United States in the future. And finally, the market revolution in the North, had political consequences that would, by the 1850s, lead to the sectional conflict that caused the Civil War. Now, you'll notice that throughout my remarks here uh, uh, about the market revolution, I have said little or nothing about the South. 
This is because there was a market in the South, but there really was no market revolution in the South. What I've been talking about up to now concerns the East as a source of manufactured goods and the West as a source of raw materials. The market revolution knit together the East and the West as trading partners, as a conduit for the flow of migrants East to West, not East to South. The famous saying, of course, is, go West, young man. That's the Horace Greeley saying. Not go South, young man. Sounds ridiculous. Ultimately, these economic ties knit the North and West together as political allies against the South that was developing in another way, its own way. Economic ties usually beget political ties. And the economic knitting together of the East and West that was a byproduct of the market revolution would, by the 1850s, produce a political alliance that marginalized the South, that made it the third party out, third man out, so to speak. Eventually, this East-West alliance would produce the anti-slavery impulse that led to the Civil War. So, it was this aspect of the market revolution that may have loomed most ominously of all. Now, the fact that the market revolution in America was primarily an east-west phenomenon did not mean that the market did not affect the South, because it did. The South traded with the North, although its economic relationships with Europe, and especially Great Britain, were also substantial. The Southern market, however, developed in a different way than it did in the East or the West. It was capitalistic, but not capitalistic in the sense of the North and the West. It proceeded from different assumptions about modes of production, the accumulation of wealth, and most importantly, the value of human life, because, of course, its lifeblood, its fuel, in contrast to the North and West, was slave labor. So now let me talk about this Southern version of the market and its different development one that, at least in my view, made the Civil War inevitable. Now, the Southern market ran not on machinery or on steam power or on water power, but on human power, on human beings. Human beings, black slaves, were its fuel and its currency. Owning human beings conferred wealth in this market, conferred social status. It meant owning the means of production, slaves. And ultimately, it meant success, measured by the opportunity to acquire more slaves. Because of this, the southern market developed on its own track, in its own way, differently from the north. Because of its reliance on slavery rather than free labor, this was inevitable. The south was a closed system, constantly turning in on itself until its contradictions overwhelmed it. And what were its contradictions? Well, basically, the fact that a slave-based economy had to remain agricultural. Because slave labor on a vast scale was just not suited to industry or factories, or cities for that matter. And if this slave economy, this slave market, was agricultural instead of industrial, it could not finance itself. It had to look elsewhere, to the north or to Europe for credit, for loans. It could not produce its own manufactured goods. 
It had to buy them from the outside, again, from the north of Europe. And it could not expand or grow the way an industrial economy like the north would expand or grow through technology, through a more rationalized method of production. The south could only grow through more land since this is the only way that an agriculturally based society can expand. Land wears out. So instead of making a, a, be, a better machine, as would an, an industrial society, an agricultural society just has to find more land. And more land mean, means more slaves as well. So while the northern market could expand upwards in place, so to speak, the southern market could only expand out geographically. A quote from the textbook captures the limitations of this kind of economy. The market revolution produced commercial agriculture, a specialized labor force, and technological innovation in the north. In the south, it simply produced more slavery. Thus, as the northern economy became more and more industrialized and mechanized and rationalized between 1800 and 1860, the percentage of northerners involved in agriculture dropped from 70% to 40%. That's a tremendous drop. While this was going on, the South stayed locked in place, uh, uh, tied to an agricultural economy specifically uh, based on cotton that was slave-based and labor-intensive, meaning uh, 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 an inefficient economy a labor-intensive economy, because more workers, not less, were uh, needed to accomplish tasks, unlike the North, where uh, uh, less workers were needed to accomplish more. Between 1800 and 1860, uh, the period in which uh, uh, the percentage of Northerners involved in agriculture was dropping so precipitously, the uh, percentage of, uh, of Southerners involved in agriculture actually rose from 82 to 84% of the workforce. So you see the results of this. 1860, 84% of the southern workforce is involved in agriculture. 40% uh, of the northern workforce is involved uh, in agriculture. The result of this was a southern market that was dependent and colonial in nature, dependent on outsiders for sustenance, and thus civil war or no civil war, at least in my view, doomed. Yet, having said this, Having pointed out these contradictions, we cannot end here, because our old friend in American history, irony, irony raises its head and invites more scrutiny. Irony number one, the slave economy, colonial and dependent as it was, still made a large number of southern planters extraordinarily rich. In 1860, for example, the 12 richest counties in the United States were all in the South. Irony number two, labor-intensive and inefficient as it was, the slave system produced a lot. Between 1810 and 1860, the South accounted for 50 to 65% of the value of all American exports, uh, 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 with, uh, I might add, much less than a half of the nation's population. Irony number three, as harsh and repressive as the American slave system was, it was the only slave system in the Western Hemisphere. Slavery also existed in the Caribbean and in South America. Uh, uh, to reproduce itself through new births, as opposed to constant importations. 
after 1808 when the African slave trade was outlawed, the American slave population nonetheless jumped from 1.1 million to almost 4 million, uh, more than a threefold increase. So the southern market, while filled with internal contradictions that, at least in my view, doomed it, nonetheless operated successfully enough to produce a huge amount of cotton, sustain a growing slave population, and make some Southerners very, very rich. And successfully enough, it operated successfully enough to invite our analysis. So, what is the Southern market? Well, the Southern market consisted basically of four different groups. Large-scale planters in the cotton-growing regions, uh, and also uh, uh, in South Carolina and Louisiana, they grew a lot of rice. In North Carolina and, and uh, Virginia, a lot of tobacco, but the rest is mostly cotton. Uh, these are the people who truly owed their livelihood to the inventor of the cotton gin, that northerner, Eli Whitney. The second group is small farmers, small white farmers, in that cotton-growing belt, often the neighbors of the large planters. The third group is the slaves themselves. And the fourth group are non-slaveholding whites, what we call yeomen, Y-E-O-M-E-N, that's the plural, Y-E-O-M-E-N, yeomen, who lived in the hill areas and the mountain areas of the South. And I'll discuss them in order. Now, between 1810 and 1860, approximately 30% of Southerners owned slaves and about 20% of these owned 20 slaves or more. These people comprise our first group, the large-scale planters, the large-scale slave owners. Now, the planters were crucial to the southern market, and uh, in view of their high pro production of cotton, uh, they were the key players in this market. They customarily supplied cotton to the north or to Europe in exchange for manufactured goods. And as I mentioned, they lived very well, uh, 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 these planters. If any of you have ever seen Gone with the Wind, you know what I'm talking about. They were very refined and genteel people, these, uh, these planters. Uh, not surprisingly, the people who lived off their slaves were. They comprised an aristocracy of sorts. If you've seen uh, Gone with the Wind, the Ashley Wilkes character is probably the best example of that. Who's seen Gone with the Wind? Okay. Ashley Wilkes, that's really who we're talking about here. You know who Ashley Wilkes was, right? He's not Rhett Butler. It's the guy that, uh, that, uh, that Scarlett O'Hara is in love with the whole time, the guy with the blonde hair. The Southern planters comprise an aristocracy. They dressed in finery. They spent lavishly. Uh, they had impeccable manners, again, like Ashley Wilkes. In many ways, they had more in common with the aristocrats of Europe than with Americans from the East or the West. The planters were extremely conservative politically, socially, even culturally, almost stagnant in their approaches to economics and social life. Wedded permanently to slavery, uh, uh, their solution for any economic problem was more land and more slaves. They were not interested in developing industry or even in internal improvements like railroads or canals or roads since they used already existing rivers like the Mississippi River to get their cotton to market. They were at the mercy of the world price for cotton. When it was high, as it was, for example, in the 1850s, they lived high. When it was low, they sank into debt. 
Thus, while they were rich in slaves and land and sometimes money, depending on the circumstances, the planters were not independent. Their fates lay in other hands, in northern hands, northern banks, northern middlemen, and British manufacturers. Now, to protect their position, these planters sought to maintain friendly relationships with the the group comprising the second uh, component of the southern market, the small white farmers who were their neighbors. Now, these small farmers who either owned a few slaves or none at all, but aspired to own slaves, existed as satellites of the planters. And the planters used a combination of paternalism mixed with white supremacist rhetoric to control these small farmers. Even though they were nowhere near as financially well-off as the planters, the small farmers were, of course, white, uh, and the planters, with their trademark gentility and civility, rarely missed an opportunity to remind their less well-off brethren of, of their common race, that despite their differences in income, bound them together and even made them equals of a sort. This white supremacy idea was central to planter society, because control of the more numerous small farmers that surrounded them was essential to the continuation of the planter way of life. The small farmers were also bound to the planter aristocracy through the planter aristocracy's acts of paternalism, of noblesse oblige, so to speak. They tied the small farmers into their worlds by flattery, through kinship ties, Sometimes they were all these the, the planters and the small farmers came from the same families. And more practically, by lending the small farmers, often lending them their slaves to get them through hard times and difficult harvests. By sometimes allowing them to combine their smaller crops with the crops in the larger plantations to take advantage of lower shipping rates and loan interest rates that the larger planters had access to by sometimes giving them jobs as plantation overseers, and by allowing them to use the more efficient plantation cotton gins to process their own crops. In these ways, the planters assured themselves of the loyalty of the small farmers who owned few or no slaves, and locked these wannabes, if you want to call them that, into the slave economy economically, and just as importantly, locked them in culturally. In 1861, when the planters called upon them to fight the Civil War, these small southern farmers would prove their loyalty to them and to the economy and culture of slavery in the South with their lives. And then, of course, there were the engines of the southern economy, the southern market itself, the slaves. Now, we'll have more to say about the relationships between the slaves and the masters later on, but for now, we can talk about the slave as property uh, and how that affected the slave's position in the southern economy. Now, there were, of course, monumental difficulties for the slave in being considered merely a piece of property by the slaveholder, like a horse or like a cotton gin. Obviously, it's degrading, to say the least, uh, for a human being to be considered to be property. The greatest of all the injustices of slavery was this aspect of dehumanization. But considering the slave as property, as a measure of wealth, had other consequences as well for the slaveholder. 
if the slave was property, that property had to be in a position to work effectively. It could not depreciate, so to speak. And thus, the slaveholder had, for purely selfish reasons, see to it that his property was reasonably well-fed and healthy, and, at least in the most relative sense, cooperative. Unhappy at his condition, to be sure, but not so disgruntled that he would not do any work. And so, the slaveholder was forced to engage in a kind of paternalism toward the slave, that he would not have afforded his horse or his cotton gin. He was forced to allow slave marriages and religious activity, give them Sundays off, give them individual cabins, uh, restrain overly harsh overseers, and take care of elderly, pregnant, or infirm slaves. Not because the planter or the slave owner necessarily wanted to, but because the slave's status as property, and specifically human property, forced them to. Now, as we will see, Southern apologists for slavery greatly exaggerated the, uh, the extent of this paternalism, as the first-hand accounts of the slaves themselves uh, uh, show us. Uh, slaves were not happy with their condition. They were worked extremely hard. They suffered constant harassment and humiliation, and worse. And even under enlightened masters, dreamed constantly of freedom, uh, uh, emotions that, by definition had to be hidden from the slaveholder. But ironically, it was the slave status as property in the southern market system that gave them the resources they needed to survive within that system. The slave's unique, essential position at the center of the southern economy gave him at least this small degree of protection. And finally, a discussion of the southern market would not be complete without some mention of a group of whites who were actually only marginally involved in the market and who, in fact, strove mightily to stay out of it. These were the self-sufficient farmers of the upcountry, the hill or the mountain areas of the south where there were few slaves, areas like western North Carolina, uh, eastern Tennessee, uh, where Andrew Johnson came from. We'll be talking about Andrew Johnson after the Civil War. Uh, Northern Alabama, eastern Kentucky, western Virginia. In these relatively remote areas, the farmers, who, as I mentioned, were known as yeomen, grew food crops and raised livestock for subsistence, rarely venturing into the market economy, and asking, basically, that they be left alone, to be independent, poor, but free. This, the planter class, was happy to do, since the yeomen made few demands on them. Although the yeomen were poor, they rarely asked for government expenditures on their behalf, endearing them, as you might imagine, to the planters, who, being rich, didn't want to spend money on social services or internal improvements. In fact, the yeomen and the planters stayed out of each other's way until the Civil War brought them together shattering forever the yeoman's world of isolation and self-sufficiency. The question of why hundreds of thousands of southern yeomen, virtually none of whom owned slaves, and many of whom who had never even laid eyes on a slave, why they would nonetheless fight and die by the thousands, the hundreds of thousands, for the Confederate cause uh, during the Civil War, 
They formed the core of Lee's army, the core of Stonewall Jackson's army, the core of many other armies. This question has mystified historians for years. We'll tackle this question later in the course. But for now, white supremacy ideology and the planter class's argument uh, that one of the Civil War's main purposes was to defend yeoman independence didn't work out that way. Uh, these will have to suffice as, base, as basic explanations for this, this question that has mystified historians, how so many who did not own slaves would fight and die for slavery. For our purposes today, the yeomen are important to a discussion of the southern market, just as the dog that does not bark in the night is important to Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson in the famous Arthur Conan Doyle story. As non participants in the market and significant in that regard just as the significance of Sherlock Holmes' dog to solving his case is that it was silent the southern market then was light years apart from its northern counterpart agricultural and not industrial on the periphery of capitalist growth not at its core colonial not self-sustaining expanding geographically only, not technologically and geographically, and most important, centered on slave and not free labor. Could these very different economic and social systems, north and south, exist, coexist in the same country? Well, obviously for many years, north and south, they did. But as we will see soon, they could not stay out of each other's way forever, especially when each coveted the same territory. We'll explore the confrontation between these two systems in a few weeks. But next time, we'll discuss the United States between the years 1828 and 1840, the age of Andrew Jackson.